Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Hi, everybody, and welcome. It's Petrifaction and Petey back at you again. Today's show is going to be so good. More strange stuff of the Mojave Desert. We did a story last season about the Mojave incident. And the Mojave is a desert that encompasses a couple different states. And if you've been, if you've been to Las Vegas, you've been in the Mojave Desert. So that's the one we're talking about. And today's stories are about the Yucca Man. The Yucca Man is like a Bigfoot kind of creature that is uh, lives near or in the desert there. There's also something called a megaphone. It's a weird thing. Nobody really knows what it is. Uh, they found it in the desert. And finally, we're going to end the show with a story about alien DNA. Is that possible? Let's get into it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. It's going to be a great one. Probably the most well-known story regarding the Mojave Desert is the incident in the Mojave. It's about the couple who went camping and were abducted by gremlin-looking entities while they were camping. It's a horrific tale, if you want to know the truth. Check out Season 1 of Petrifaction for that story. It's the Mojave Incident. So not that long ago, back in August of 2021, a former intelligence officer came out and announced that she would be conducting a scientific expedition to a secret alien base in the Mojave Desert. She's retired intelligence officer and contactee Angelia Schultz. And she announced that she'll be heading a scientific expedition 
to an alien base hidden beneath a mountain in the Mojave Desert. Schultz says that she communicated with the inhabitants of the mountains herself in a subterranean encounter that took place earlier this year. That would have been back in 2021. In her August 17th press conference held at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Schultz reported that on January 21st, 2018, she was approached by two individuals that she refers to as Wayne and Trisha while sitting in a coffee shop in Southern California. The trio discussed the nature of consciousness and Schultz's illness. When Wayne told her about a tunnel he had excavated under his property after encountering what he referred to as aliens that told him they had a base in a nearby mountain, Wayne invited her to his home so that she could visit the tunnel. As she took him up on the offer and entered the tunnel with Wayne, Trisha, and two other individuals. After rounding a corner in the tunnel, the group encountered two different types of beings, a gray accompanied by a number of very tall, human-like beings with fine, white hair, and what Schultz describes as radiant and nearly alabaster. These beings greeted her by name and said that they had been waiting to talk to her. They took Schultz into their base into a room where she met numerous other beings, including an eight-foot-tall, lavender-colored praying mantis type that Schultz recognized from earlier encounters. Schultz reports that the beings removed her consciousness from her body, urging her to wake up and to remember who she was, what it was that she was supposed to be doing, and explained to her, the evolution and growth of consciousness through learning, using the concept of density, something Schultz was unable to understand at the time. After escorting her back to the entrance of their base, Schultz suddenly found herself back in the home of her, of her human hosts. Schultz is planning on forming a scientific exploration team to revisit the base in an effort to document the existence of the base and gather evidence of the presence of non-human intelligences here. Although she did not divulge their names, Schultz said the team already has one astronaut, a well-known documentarian, and a chief investigative reporter on board, and are looking for academics, physicists, and astronomers to join the expedition. Although Schultz reports that Wayne and Trisha are okay with the expedition. She does not mention whether or not the entities have expressed their thoughts regarding the effort. Regarding funding for the expedition, Schultz also says that there are people that have money and they want this to happen. The press conference itself is available in full on YouTube. <coughs> Missing in the Mojave. The unexplained disappearance of Kenny Veach. It's not unusual that people disappear, but the vanishing of Kenny Veach is really bizarre. There are several strange aspects about his case, and it's impossible to say what really happened. What did Kenny see and feel when he entered the mysterious cave in the Nevada desert? According to himself, he said shortly before he vanished, there were some supernatural forces in the cave. There are many questions and once again, a few answers. The disappearance of 47-year-old Kenny Veach remains unexplained. 
Kenny, who loved hiking, disappeared on Monday, November 10th, 2014. He told his family that he was going on a short overnight trip into the Sheep Mountains in Nevada. One month earlier, he had discovered a very strange cave in the Mojave Desert. He said the cave evoked a strange, possibly supernatural occurrence within him, and he wanted to explore it. Kenny wanted to show the world the unusual cave he had discovered, but he did not return home from his trip, and he was never seen again. Before his disappearance, Kenny commented on a YouTube video claiming to have found a cave around Nellis Air Force Base in southern Nevada. Kenny was a brave explorer, and he entered every cave he came across, but this particular cave frightened him. On YouTube, he wrote, I'm a long-distance hiker. One time during one of my hikes out by Nellis Air Force Base, I found a hidden cave. The, en the entrance to the cave was shaped like a perfect capital M. I always entered every cave I find, but as I began to enter this particular cave, my whole body began to vibrate. The closer I got to the cave entrance, the worse the vibrating became. Suddenly, I became very scared and hightailed it out of there. That was one of the strangest things that ever happened to me, to locate the cave based on the video. What happened next is a mystery. All we know is that Kenny returned to the site a month later to find the cave, and he was never seen or heard from again. We can only speculate about what happened to him. Many people have disappeared in the desert, even experienced hikers, but what makes this case unusual is the mysterious M cave that he was so frightened to enter due to unexplained vibration. Was something extraordinary hidden in the cave? Was the cave much larger than he expected? Did he perhaps get lost, unable to find his way back to the surface? Why are there no updates about his disappearance? The only thing we know is that a search party was formed by Nevada Rescue Volunteers. They found Veach's cell phone near an abandoned mine shaft a week later after his disappearance, but there were no traces of Kenny himself. No body, clothes, or other belongings had ever been found, and Kenny seems to have vanished into thin air. The Mojave Desert's the driest desert in North America, and though it rests between Los Angeles and Las Vegas, it's still remote. It's mostly roadless and it's full of secrecy. Not far from the ghost town of Crucero, California, this arid emptiness is home to the enigmatic Mojave Megaphone, so called for its resemblance to a loudspeaker. It's located in a remote corner of the Mojave Desert National Preserve, and this megaphone is a rusty hunk of metal permanently embedded into a rock no one has been able to identify what exactly this thing is. Some call it the Sentinel Enigma, others call it art. Everyone calls it a mystery, much like the Utah monolith that made worldwide headlines in November of 2020. Furthermore, there's nothing and no one for miles around. It's a riddle as to how this heavy, roughly eight foot long object wound up in its resting place. It's comprised of two horn-shaped pieces of metal bolted together in the middle. 
it's too big to be a one-person job. A group of people, or perhaps aliens, went to a lot of work to place this monstrosity, far from any civilized place, mounting it on the cliffside. No one knows how long it's been there either. My best guess is that it was put up there about 30 years ago, says Eric Edwards, the founder of Campsite Photos. He wrote about the Sentinel Enigma on his blog and has visited it. Although it is in two pieces, each piece is very heavy, but a few people could probably carry and drag it up there. Still, it would be very difficult and take a long time to get it up that hill. There's also another lingering question. What in the world is it? That's the big question, says Edwards. There's also another lingering question. What exactly is it? That's a big question, says Edwards. It has some similarities to a siren, but it's unlikely. Still, that area was used to transport chemical agents on rail, and perhaps a siren was used if there was a mishap. He also pointed out that there are no markings on it to indicate what it is or where it was made. Recently, someone put animal skin over the openings and used it as a drum, but he says he doesn't think that was its original purpose. Others have speculated that it's part of a rocket system or perhaps a pipeline. Because it has crosshair-shaped metal strips inside it, others believe it's a gun sight or sighting device of some sort. There are more fantastical theories too. Perhaps it's a tool pointing out the location of a California cave system that extends for hundreds of miles, or even an X marking the spot of a huge gold hoard. Given its shape though, the megaphone nickname makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's part of an antiquated alert system, as some people have guessed, like a tornado siren on steroids. Well, perhaps not. It's probably not a civil defense or air raid siren, says Sarah Robbie, a history professor at Idaho State University. The early Cold War versions almost always have a rectangular mouth. World War II area air sirens really didn't look like that either, even the ones that were more cylindrical. Moreover, you'd expect to find such civilian-oriented sirens in much more heavily populated areas, not out in the desert. So her guess? It's a measurement tool of some kind. Its proximity to Edwards Air Force Base, as well as Navy and Army sites, is a much bigger clue, she says. Edwards is where the Air Force did a lot of sound barrier experiments, including Chuck Yeager's famous flights. I could definitely see something like the megaphone being some sort of measuring instrument related to flight, shock sound waves, etc. She also points out that the Nevada testing site, now the Nevada National Security Site, isn't too far away. That's where all the U.S. continental nuclear weapons were tested. These were conducted above ground until 1963 and then below ground after. Even though the megaphone is 150 miles plus away from civilization, it's plausible that something like this could have been used to detect long-range shock waves or other disturbances. If you have a rugged vehicle with high clearance, you can make the journey to the megaphone and then hike the ridge to see it for your own eyes.
Since the 1970s, when the Mojave Desert base expanded from its World War II encampment, there have been regular reports of new recruits terrorized by both the Yucca Man and pranks inspired by the tales. But most spitings of the spectral creature come from campers and hikers at Joshua Tree National Park. Tents have been opened in the night by stinking monstrosities, and there is an occasional large footprint or blurry photograph submitted as evidence. A snapshot from the Hidden Valley Campground has made the rounds for a decade now. The figure bounding over the boulders looks much like the iconic Bigfoot from the Patterson-Gimlin film in 1967. Since the 1960s, when Tales of Yucca Man and his desert cohorts were commonly reported by Southern California newspapers and television stations, amateur cryptozoologists and Bigfoot researchers have analyzed the blurry pictures and measured the prints in the sand, all in the effort to document a flesh-and-blood creature they believe exists alongside everyday mammals such as bears, coyotes, and humans. But the natives who lived in California long before European colonization considered these creatures to be supernatural entities with names that often translated to hairy devils. They took care to avoid the gloomy spots where the devils were often seen. The intriguing results raise many questions about the physical nature of abduction and also illustrate the need for more intensive scientific research on this worldwide mystery. The full case, reported by leading Australian researcher Bill Chalker, was published in the spring 1999 edition of an international UFO reporter in the quarterly journal of the Chicago-based J. Ellen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. Kufos. The following summary is published with Chalker's permission and assistance. Peter Corey, the subject of this case, was born in Lebanon in 1964 and moved to Australia in 1973. There he met his future wife Vivian at school in 1981. Peter and Vivian were married in 1990 and now have two children. They live in Sydney. Peter works in the building trades and has owned his own business in cement rendering. Peter and Vivian had their first UFO experience in February 1988, a simple sighting of unusual moving lights. But in July of that year, Peter had a deeply disturbing, consciously remembered contact experience that he says changed his life. While lying on his bed, he felt something grab his ankles. He suddenly felt numb and paralyzed, but remained conscious. Then he noticed three or four small hooded figures alongside the bed. He experienced telepathic communication with one or more of these beings. He was told to relax and to not be afraid, because it would be like last time. He then saw that they were about to insert a long needle into the side of his head, whereupon he blacked out. He jolted awake some time later, leaped out of bed, and ran into the living room where he found his father and brother apparently dozing. 
Both he and his brother felt that only 10 minutes had passed since they had last been awake, but they soon realized that an hour or more had passed. The next morning, Peter and Vivian noticed that there was an obvious puncture mark on the side of his head and a trace of dried blood. At this time, Peter had never heard of alien abduction. His memories were vivid and alarming, but he could find neither answers nor comfort from friends. Then, some months later, he and Vivian drove by a roadside billboard with an image of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, and they immediately got that book. Peter found numerous details in Strieber's book that matched his own strange experience. Peter's subsequent attempts to connect with local UFO groups and experiencers proved frustrating. Eventually, in April 1993, he resolved to found a new group in Sydney, the UFO Experience Support Association, UFOESA. It's dedicated to helping people understand and cope with their unusual encounters. He remains the coordinator of that group today. In July of 1992, Peter had the experience that became the focus of his case study. Because the experience had disturbing sexual aspects, Peter was very reticent to talk about it. He first mentioned it to Bill Chalker, one of Australia's leading researchers, in 1996. He showed Chalker that he had recovered an unusual strand of hair from the encounter. At the time, Chalker felt that he could not do anything with the physical evidence, but over the next several years, he assembled a group of scientists and forensic investigators willing to work on UFO-related cases. With his invisible college, Chalker discussed the possibility of doing PCR amplification and sequencing of mitochondrial DNA that might be recovered from Corey's hair sample. In early 1998, these researchers, now calling themselves the Anomaly Physical Evidence Group, agreed to do the DNA testing on the hair sample. Chucker points out that alien beings are most often described by experiencers as having no visible hair, but one type, sometimes called Nordic, is described fairly often as having distinct, distinctly human-like features, including hair often, though not always, blonde in color. A number of well-known abduction cases have involved human-looking beings with hair, including the 1975 abduction reported by Travis Walton in Arizona and the 1957 Brazilian abduction reported by Antonio Villas Boas. Peter Corey's case has some similarity to that of Villas Boas, who said he was forced to have sex with an aggressive humanoid female aboard a landed UFO. Corey told Chalker that his encounter of July 23, 1992, began at 7.30 in the morning while he was in bed. He'd recently been injured at work and was taking pain medication. Earlier that morning, he had driven his wife to work, then returned home and went back to bed for a while. Suddenly, he bolted wide awake and sat up. There were two humanoid females sitting on the bed, both entirely naked. These two women looked human in every way. They had well-proportioned adult bodies. 
One looked someone Asian, with straight, dark, shoulder-length hair and dark eyes. The other looked perhaps Scandinavian, with light-colored, maybe bluish eyes and long blonde hair that fell halfway down her back. Her hair was especially notable to Peter. I'd never seen a hairstyle like that. It was curled something like Farrah Fawcett, but to an extreme. It just looked really exotic. But Corey felt that these women were not exactly human. Their faces were somewhat odd, not unattractive, but, but too chiseled, with very high cheekbones and eyes that were two or three times larger than the normal human eye. Corey took special notice of the blonde. Her face was too long, he felt. I've never seen a human being looking like that, he said. The blonde who was sitting in a kneeling position on the bed seemed to be in charge. Corey thought she was communicating telepathically with the dark-haired woman who was sitting with her legs partly folded under her. There was something stiff, almost blank, in the expressions of the women. Though stunned by the sudden appearance of the women, Corey had only a few moments to consider how they could possibly have arrived in his bedroom before the blonde reached out with both her hands and cupped the back of his head, drawing his face toward her chest. He resisted, but she pulled harder. He kept falling back. She was pretty strong, he told Chucker. She pulled me over, and my mouth was basically on her nipple, and I bit. Corey said he doesn't know why he bit the woman, but even though he felt a small piece of her nipple come away in his teeth, she did not cry out. But the expression on her face was like, this isn't the way. In a way, it was shock or confusion. She looked at the Asian one and looked at me like, this isn't the way it's supposed to happen. You've done this wrong. Involuntarily, Corey swallowed the small fragment in his mouth and it caught in his throat. He went into a coughing fit and suddenly the two women simply disappeared. Once he realized the women were gone, he tried to clear his throat by drinking water. It didn't work. Then he had an urge to go to the bathroom. He realized that his penis felt very painful. Standing in the bathroom, he pulled back the foreskin and found two thin, blonde strands of hair wrapped tightly around. He struggled to unravel the pieces of hair as the pain became an intense, burning sensation. Finally, he managed to remove the two pieces of hair and immediately put them in a small, sealable plastic bag. The reason I did that was because I knew that there was no way, no way at all, that a hair that size and wrapped around the way it was should have been there. Thinking of these women, the thing in my throat, the hair, something bizarre had just happened. Corey resolved to keep the hair sample in case it should ever prove useful in shedding light on his experiences. The thing in Corey's throat stayed there for three days. He coughed constantly. He tried clearing his throat. He tried drinking. He tried eating bread, anything he could think of, but nothing helped. On the third day, the feeling in his throat just went away. He did not want to tell his wife how his coughing fit had come about. Two weeks later, he decided to tell her. I was shocked, he told Chalker. She accepted it better than I did. The pieces of hair carefully stored away since the encounter, became the subject of the first openly reported 
scientific DNA test on a possible abduction-related sample. The blonde hairs were extremely thin and almost clear in color. It was determined that the hair was not chemically treated because if it had been, little or no mitochondrial DNA could have been recovered. However, using the PCR method, DNA was recovered and a good quality. For comparison, samples were also taken of Peter's hair and that of his wife Vivian. DNA was successfully extracted from Peter's hair, but no usable DNA was recovered from Vivian's hair, possibly because of chemical treatment. After thorough testing of the hair samples, the scientists of the Anomaly Physical Evidence Group arrived at a startling conclusion. The thin blonde hair, which appeared to have come from a light-skinned Caucasian-type woman, could not have come from a normal human of that racial type. Instead, though human, the hair showed five distinctive DNA markers that are characteristic of a rare subgroup of the Chinese mongoloid racial type. A detailed survey of the, of the literature on variations in mitochondrial DNA, comprising tens of thousands of samples, showed only four other people on record with all five of the distinctive markers in the blonde hair. All four were Chinese with black hair. Mitochondrial DNA is passed only from mother to child and therefore offers a means of tracing ancient ancestry on the mother's side. The findings suggest that all four of the Chinese subjects share a common female ancestor with the blonde woman. But there is no easy explanation for how this could be. Testing for nuclear DNA, if such could be recovered from the blonde hair, would be more complex and expensive than the test run so far, but might show that the lineage of the, of the blonde's father was even stranger than that of her mother. But such testing must wait. Funding has yet to be founded. So far, the members of the Anomaly Physical Evidence Group have financed all their work themselves. Without the blonde hair sample, the story told by Peter Corey is but one more in an almost endless sequence of wrenching but unprovable abduction accounts. The hair, however, changes everything. It undeniably exists, and thorough forensic tests shows that it's an anomalous. Seems like that no person with blonde hair and an exact DNA match to Corey's blonde could be found in the city of Sydney, nor on the continent of Australia, nor probably anywhere in the world. Who then was this being whose blonde hair inexplicably became wrapped around Peter Corey's penis? Are we dealing with humans from elsewhere, namely those with human DNA, albeit very rare and somewhat anomalous? This case raises all sorts of issues, such as human panspermia, the theory that human-like beings may have migrated to Earth in the fairly recent past from somewhere else in the galaxy, perhaps giving rise to the sudden appearance of modern Homo sapiens a species not directly descendant from their immediate predecessors, the Neanderthals. Also, given the Asian-Mongoloid connection, we looked at the problem of European-like rare Asian types in the past, said Chalker. 
the controversial saga of the Taklamakan mummies in remote western China is turning the early history of China on its head. These mummies include people who were quite tall, some six feet or so, and some were blonde. I'm not suggesting a connection here, but you can understand this investigation has opened up all sorts of interesting possibilities about the biological nature of some of the beings implicated in abduction cases. These questions will not be easy to answer, but supporting the work of the Anomaly Physical Evidence Group could help. Those able to offer financial assistance are urged to contact Bill Chalker at bill underscore c at bigpond.com. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified. <laughs>